Hello and welcome to the Cinema Sit Down powered by Groovy. My name is Dom and I'm an International Account Manager here at Groovy's branch in Perth, Australia. Today I have a very special guest joining me, Dr. Rory Elkington. Dr. Elkington is currently a Senior Lecturer in Creative Industries at the Queensland University of Technology and a Chief Investigator with QUT's Digital Media Research Centre. He has published in the field of screen distribution, screen studies and education and has worked extensively in the screen industry here in Australia. So Rory, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. So here at Groovy, we've been following your research into cinema audiences and the evolving theatrical industry. You recently conducted a presentation at ICA, which is the Independent Cinemas of Australia conference, which was on the very same matter. So yeah, we just had a few questions we want to ask you and just sort of get your insights into the industry here. So I guess sort of starting off, how have you seen that audiences have changed over the years and where do you think the cinema experience fits in the current climate? Well, thanks for the question, Dom, and obviously thanks for the invitation also. I always look forward to any opportunity to, to talk cinema with people who are invested in it and care about the industry, as I know Groovy does. Uh, to your question, well, there's been a big thing that's happened in the last couple of years, and I think we can all point to what that is in a pandemic-y kind of way. So it, it's there really is, from where I sit, you know, or research around cinema audiences pre-pandemic and uh research around cinema audiences post-pandemic. And that's really reflected in so much of uh, the industry reporting that we see as well. Because I know you're, you're in this space and I assume many of your listeners are in this space. We'd be very familiar with that, uh, both industry reporting and research about you know, 2019. 2019 levels, getting back to 2019 levels as the kind of high watermark. And it's interesting talking now with people, and this came up actually at the ICA conference, you know, we need to maybe perhaps park 2019 uh, and start thinking, right, well, what's 23, 24, 25 like? So that's a, I guess that's a long way of saying that audiences and the industry has fundamentally changed as a result of COVID, just as every industry has, just as the world indeed has changed. And a massive part of that change went to the heart, I think, of the sustainability for this audience. And what I mean by that is cinema going is a, is a habit activity. It's a habit forming activity as well. So, you know, it's, if we do it a lot, we tend to do it more because it's a, a good and a pleasurable experience. But COVID interrupted so much. And it, of course, interrupted that in-person leaving of the home to go to cinemas. And that's a really obvious point that you would be aware of, that anyone would be aware of. But it's also a fundamental point when we consider cinema audiences, because it is very hard to point to just how many people, both globally and locally, had their frequency and their that habit formed around cinema going disrupted. To what degree it was disrupted, to what degree it's now coming back, is a source of a lot of discussion and a lot of research. But I suppose that the point I would make to try and tie some of that up is that there's probably increasingly less value in looking back to 2019 and doing these comparisons between what has gone uh, and probably more value, I'd suggest, in taking a good hard look at, at what audiences are now, what kind of films we have coming through now, what kind of experiences we have coming through or we wish to create, um, and to try and chart a course forward. So I, th I guess 
on the back of that, do you reckon cinemas also have to sort of look introspectively into what they're offering as well? Like in terms of like what they can offer audiences and the experience they're providing to audiences, like, especially now, like, like you said, if you do look back a little bit, just for this instance, you know, it's easier than ever to access films at home and it's cheaper, it's more accessible. You know, you can bring as many people as you want around to watch a film. So do you think the burden sort of lies on the cinemas as well to offer an experience that once, you know, makes people want to get out of the house to watch a film? Yeah. Look, I mean, a burden, the responsibility absolutely is, is with cinemas, right? This is the game that they're in, Dom, getting people into their hard clothes, getting people off the couch, getting people to schedule their lives and arrange their lives in such a way that they can actually go to the cinema, which is kind of a miraculous thing in itself. Cinema going requires people to go to a cinema. Seems obvious, but it's actually an incredibly complicated task for so many people. It was complicated pre-COVID, certainly it's complicated now. Um, and look, it was a double whammy, of course, right, during the pandemic. And what I mean by that is it wasn't just a case of cinemas being closed and audiences staying at home. But as we all know, we also witnessed this unprecedented expansion of streaming offerings, some of which is serialised content that cinemas haven't done. So I'm talking about TV, but of course, also feature films, right? So that does set up this idea in the minds of some audiences, but certainly in the headlines of media, right? Because we've seen so much reporting about streaming killing cinema or streaming negatively impacting cinema. Because there is a shared piece of content there, right? So the feature film can be watched at home, but it can also be watched in the cinema. But there's a big, big difference, a fundamental difference about the experience of watching that piece of content. So to your question, I think that really, and cinemas have always done this, you know, over the hundred plus years, <clears throat> But really honing in on that notion of experience, not to uh, relegate content or to say that content's not important, but those windows of ex exclusivity around content we know have, are shrinking, right? So what they really, I would suggest, want to be able to hone in on is what is distinct about that the experience, you know, at what is the, the fundamental motivation beyond the film, which don't forget, cinemas have no control of, cinemas don't make the films, right? They are, they are exhibitors, they hold it up and they uh, promote it and they screen it. So in some ways, the content is sort of not something they have control of. How that content is marketed, presented, uh, and how the experience for someone, right from being online and looking at the film, walking into a cinema, engaging with staff, watching the film, walking out again, how that whole thing is mapped and thought about and conceived is really important. You know, And that is the kind of loci of control, that is the stuff cinemas can do, okay? I mean, Matt, um, Matt Liebman of Vista Group has spoken recently about how maybe gone from that space of looking at um, that technical aspects, you know, the big screen, big sound. Of course, those things are important, they're big, big drivers, but it's very difficult, I would suggest, for a cinema to suddenly change around a Barco laser projector or put in an entirely new uh, screen or uh, you know, put recliners in. These things are really resource heavy and intensive, but they do have a big impact on experience. Well, the other thing that has a huge impact on experience is what we're doing right now, human interaction, talking to people. And when you think about that, that human interaction pit, then there's actually, I would suggest, massive opportunity to shape that experience from cinemas. And it's kind of, this was a point I made at ICA, it's kind of low hanging fruit, right? Cinemas have staff staff interact with customers, customers interact with each other. 
So again, you know, to Matt Liebman's point around this, are we kind of thinking about this moving into a space where it really is about the customer service aspect, you know, how people can be made to feel special in that space. And some of these tweaks, you know, some of these things that can be done, I'd suggest, um, again, yeah, really low hanging fruit. Like I've had some really mediocre engagements with customer service staff at a range of cinemas, which I will not name. And I've had some fantastic engaging uh, experiences with staff. And you can move that into any retail setting. Like we've all had that in various places and spaces. But I would suggest that making people quite deliberately feel special and privileged and excited about going to the cinema um, is one of the best ways to encourage that kind of repeat frequency and attendance of cinema going. Do you think that the motivation of like the cinema attendance sort of varies based on age and like demo? Like, do you think older people have different motivations compared to younger people? And obviously, you know, looking at male and females, like what actually motivates them to go to the cinema? Like, did your research look at any of those sort of breakdowns? Well, I think this is quite uh, partly in, in regards to our research, and I, I can obviously go into detail about that. But I think that observation you make about cinema going being quite age and stage defined is quite well established in the research. And indeed, I think some of the Groovy podcasts have, have pointed pretty clearly to this in recent times. Uh, and it, look, it makes sense, right? Okay, so if you're uh, a teenager, if you're uh, Gen Z, if you're living at home with your parents, if you have a certain amount of disposable income, you don't need to organize a babysitter, you don't need, there's lots of things you don't have to do. There's lots of um, restrictions to your life, but there's also lots of ability that you have within your life. If you fast forward through to, um, people who have uh, childcare responsibilities all the way through to empty nesters and Gen Zs, uh, Gen Xs and beyond and to the baby boomers, well, then suddenly we see people who have a bit more time, a bit more disposable income, perhaps uh, have had a lifetime of kind of engagement with culture and probably were going to cinemas for the longest period of time and had the longest opportunity to kind of develop that habit forming. So again, to bring it back to your question, uh, the, the palace work that we did uh, with Palace Movie Club members did skew older. You know, these were folks that uh, were Palace Movie Club members. They were engaged with uh, not just Palace, but also with a survey. So they took the time to complete this quite lengthy survey. Um, and it is, it absolutely is an area of focus and attention and should be for cinemas because these different groups, these different demographics, obviously have different needs and uh, desires in terms of that cinema going experience. But the, the, just to round out, I guess, that, that idea, I do feel that there's one group that everyone needs to be focusing on really, really clearly, and it's the obvious one in this whole equation, which is uh, young people. Young people who really are still very much working out and developing what their relationship with cinema is now for them as young people. But of course, it seems like an obvious point, but that will shape their relationship with cinema and cinema going for the rest of their lives, you know? So it's this younger uh, generation, Gen Zs now, who are going to the cinema and we know the kind of content that they're going to, the sort of expected um, broad comedies, it's action, it's around horror as well. But I don't want, and I don't think any, anyone in the industry wants cinema going to become for these current young people who will be, you know, moving forward and having kids and, and being older, to become an activity that is about big event films and nothing else, right? It's just like going to the theatre where people might see one or two huge kind of shows and they hoover up all the audience and all the attention. 
I think unless there's a deliberate concerted effort to reach out and connect a range of different kinds of content and films for young people, the risk is uh, that those young people do just become associating cinema with these huge big tentpole films. And I think that would be a real loss to what is uh, current, but also future cinema going audience. We really need to think long and hard about young people and how their relationship with cinema is being shaped. Well, I mean, on the back of that, I mean, right now we're in the middle of the American summer. So obviously it's winter here in Australia, but like there's so many blockbusters coming out like on a week by week basis mm. to the point where like even the blockbusters are suffocating to an extent, like they're yeah. cannibalizing themselves. Do you see that that like, how do you see that films can perform in such a crowded market and specifically those smaller films when already the blockbusters are struggling to begin with? Yeah. Well, these things are cyclic. I mean, we, there was obviously a period where we that pipeline had, had dried up or it was being, um, you know, throttled somewhat um, as a result of COVID. We're going to see that, of course, happen again, you know, uh, as a result of the writer's strike currently. You know, there's, there's obviously a lot of content that's in the bag, that's in the can. So there's a, there's a buffer there. But the current writer's strike, which has now been going on for three months, I think, or longer, Especially if the act, if the actors as well, if SAG decides to join them as well, that will only further exacerbate it. So, long story short, we're looking at another um, potential kind of drought of content that's going to impact. So, this that that situation that you describe of you know blockbusters kind of crowding together. I think there is some some specificity around that that's quite unique. Um, but we will see a drought occurring again, and when then we'll see this kind of abundance of content occurring. I mean, I'm probably less concerned about the that that kind of crush of big films i mean you're right that the risk with it always is that they don't have time on screen to find and to cultivate an audience but if you speak to exhibitors that mainly that lack of content and that lack of kind of steady per week big well-positioned quality films was a big complaint so we've sort of Solve that one in a moment. The the flip side of it, as you identify, is that, you know, there's a lot, right? And maybe they kind of crowd each other out. So I'm probably um, less concerned about that bit and, and probably a bit more concerned um, with some of those titles that don't fall into that category, okay? So how, how do exhibitors, uh, how can they be supported to find the space on their screens, which is obviously going to vary greatly depending on what sort of um, cinema you operate and run, how can they be supported to find space on their screens to be able to program these films and to keep them in the absence of massive Hollywood, to be able to keep them to allow audiences to find them? That's that's not a new problem. That's That's been around for, for some time. But it's important that we try, we, the whole ecosystem, distributors, exhibitors, um, researchers, people that are invested in cinema, it's important that we do try to, to find a solution to that because... It's just like any, um, if you think about um, any kind of diet, you know, any sort of um, things that we consume, you want diversity, right? We can't just always have hamburgers, fries and milkshakes, great though that might be. It's just not healthy. We do need for a healthy, ongoing uh, environment, we need a diversity of stuff coming through. And exhibitors know that they want to be able to cultivate and speak to a range of audiences, not just people that want a big Hollywood blockbuster or a huge recognizable film every week but uh i mean there's been some recent reporting around distributor exhibitor relationships and how some of the expectations around policy might be um, problematic or restricting that that's not a new debate in the industry that's not a new tension in the industry although now we are starting to see more 
public kind of media reporting around that. So that's been interesting to see as a, as a researcher kind of from the outside looking in. Because I do think that's part of it. There needs to be support for exhibitors to be able to identify and cultivate a diversity of audiences, which means a diversity of films. So diversity of films, diversity of audiences, because really, Dom, that's going to ensure sustainability for these operators. You know, cinema's closing is good for absolutely no one. You know, not good for a community in terms of social, cultural, economic benefit. Certainly not good for those operators. Not good for distributors, right? Not good for the people that want to be able to find a home and a screen for their film. So, you know, media love reporting on cinemas closing. Media is not so good at reporting when cinemas open. So we sort of have this narrative that's kind of running around cinemas closing. But they really, I would suggest, some real attention needs to be paid towards how exhibitors can be supported to both program and sustain that diversity of content leading to a diversity of audiences. So in terms of like the diversity of audience, do you think part of it would be to try and attract first time, you know, not necessarily first time cinema goers, but people who aren't necessarily attracted to that certain film and might not or that genre to try and, you know, attract customers to that film and, you know, I guess, shape their practices to try and bring audiences yeah. that aren't conventionally interested in the content that they're playing? Yeah. So look back to the to the top of this conversation. I mean, so there's first time visitors to a cinema, right? And that's obviously going to vary widely depending on where that cinema is. So for metro areas and for inner urban, you're going to have a lot more first timers. For regional, rural, um, independent cinemas, uh, that's probably going to be less likely. But you're right. You're going to have people that have come to the cinema for the first time. Currently, how do we know who those people are, right? And we being people that are invested in in those people having a wonderful experience. Cinemas uh, probably struggle to be able to identify them, but I would suggest that the experience that that person has, it's back to that fundamental idea around first impressions lasting. The experience that that person has is crucial, right? It's crucial for them uh, to be able to say, I went to a new cinema, saw a film, and the experience was ABC. And the experience is going, to, when, when that person talks to, to peers, to other people at a barbecue, to their family about the fact that they went to see a movie, very mundane kind of experience, but when they talk about it, they'll talk about the film. Of course, they'll talk about the film. But either in the back or in the front, when they talk about it, they'll talk about that whole experience. They'll talk about the interaction or lack of interaction and the quality of that interaction that they had with staff. They'll talk about um, what they saw in terms of the trailers, bearing in mind that the best space for watching a trailer is in a cinema, right? The absolute best way to expose people and get that pipeline of interest and engagement going sure we can watch trailers anyway you can watch them on the phone but the best place to watch them obviously is in a cinema when they're programmed really carefully alongside others so that first uh experience for someone who hasn't been to the cinema before is crucial but how do we know well we could actually ask them right you could actually have staff that are asking that question maybe not have you been here before but have you been here lately you know what was the last film that you saw you know um these questions around previous experiences and also kind of keying into the experience that they're about to have. So what I mean by that is if someone's about to see um, No Hard Feelings, there's going to be a trailer being run for that for um, uh, another kind of MA15 plus kind of raunch comedy, then you can signal that. You know, you can give people a heads up as to what is occurring with that. So that helps both 
the first timers that you mentioned, right? Because we're able to identify them and just give a, a sense of it being a kind of special, unique situation. But also people have been away for a while. If they have, you know, and that's maybe where that movie club data tracking piece is really important to be able to identify those folk that maybe have been absent for a while, life has got in the way, there hasn't been anything that they wanted to see. But guess what? They're back now. They're in front of you. They're at the candy bar. They bought a ticket and they're about to go see another film after a period of absence. I think there's a, a huge, just really human opportunity to engage those people and to give that sense of occasion and specialness and experience that I think is going to become increasingly uh, important and valuable if we're going to kind of chart a further course through. I guess taking a step back, I'm curious, like, you know, obviously a lot of these techniques are quite helpful when the people are already sort of interested in going to the cinema, have gone to the cinema, but how do you think cinemas can attract people who maybe haven't even expressed that interest yet? Like yeah. is digital marketing, I guess, um, the important factor here? Like, is that something yeah. that is important for cinemas and by extension, I guess, film distributors to utilize, to try and identify an audience that might have might not go to the cinema frequently? Yeah. Look, I mean, we've got to remember that the movies are pretty, um, in some ways, they're super easy goods to work with, right? I mean, you're very, it's like, it's a bit like if you've ever asked someone, you know, have you listened to any good music lately? And they say, I don't really like music. Like, you don't really hear that. And it's similar to the movies. Like, if you ask someone if they've seen a good film recently, you very rarely hear someone say, I don't really like films, okay? So we're kind of working off this basis that people like movies, and they like going to the movies if they've had the opportunity to do so. So right off the bat, we're, we're coming off a pretty good base in terms of engaging um, a consumer and engaging a kind of customer. So that's, one, that's kind of the, the base point that I make. I mean, further to that around the marketing piece, yeah, it's crucial. It's crucial because it's something that, I mean, especially with there's a, a beautiful kind of test case right now or a case study in terms of the, the Barbie and the Oppenheimer marketing, right? I mean, the degree to which Barbie is being promoted through activations and through a range of ways in which it can lodge in the minds of consumers um, is, is huge. Now, that is a big film with an enormous marketing and P&A budget, okay? But are there cues from the lead time and the attention in which that film has been positioned, as well as how it's cleverly kind of, you know, bouncing off counter-programming like Oppenheimer, are there kind of cues from that that can be taken into the marketing of, of any film? And I'd suggest there is. Part of it is around budgeting and resourcing. Part of it is around timelines and lead time. And part of it also about the positioning of the film, right? Because marketing is, of course, positioning things when people haven't seen it. We don't know what it is, right? And how do we find out what it is and get a sense of it? Well, that's what the marketing does. It tells us. Um, and, of course, in the case of Barbie, they have got this, you know, incredible moment right now where is like literally gasoline is being poured on this marketing fire where the marketing of Barbie and its kind of relationship with Oppenheimer has become its news item in itself, which of course is only further underscoring yeah. the marketing for Barbie. It's just incredible to, to watch that occurring. And don't forget, it could happen about anything, right? And has it usually does. I mean, it's this sort of level of attention around the marketing of a cultural good is usually for like games. We saw it with Taylor Swift, you know, big chats around that. It could be for, um, you know, a huge theatre production, but it's not. It's about cinema, right? So we're actually having this big cultural conversation and this big kind of cultural moment around the marketing of a feature film. So that's super, super exciting. But to your point, to, to bring this back to um, your question, 
I do think that it's absolutely crucial that that marketing piece is considered because it really is consistently the way in which all of us make sense of what a film is and whether it's going to relate to what we want to engage with. And it's not one point, you know, it's that marketing funnel of how does someone decide that that's the film that's right for them? It's multiple touch points, you know, it's seeing that trailer, it's being reminded of in a social media mention, it's seeing a poster in cinema, right? Or it's seeing a flyer in cinema. It's that kind of word of mouth option. Um, so these things don't necessarily need to be massive, expensive operations. It's not. It's too simplistic to say better marketing requires bigger budgets and more time. It just requires more care and attention and human resourcing, I'd suggest. Do you think your research would have varied had you had conducted it at like a bigger cinema? Like, you know, obviously here we've got our event cinemas and Hoyt cinemas, which probably attract more varied audiences um, mm -hmm. compared to obviously independent, which obviously your studies had been conducted at Palace Cinemas, which is sort of like, I guess, a mid-tier independent cinema. Like they have, they're quite prominent in Australia, but they probably, like you said, um, skew a little bit older in terms of the audience. Um, yeah. Do you think, yeah, do you think your research would have found different results had you sort of conducted uh, the studies at, one of the megaplexes? Well, palaces, pal the audience for palace cinemas is actually very broad. The audience that responded to our survey was not as broad, okay? So it's an important point to make. I mean, when you look at the kind of metro audiences for palace, I mean, it's diverse and, it, and it's broad. So they are catering to a pretty good cross-section. Um, but the reason that the independence kind of came into the frame for our research is that when to cast the mind back to COVID when cinemas shut down, we saw, my research partner, Dr. Tess Van Hammett and myself, saw a lot of communication, a lot of kind of think pieces, a lot of social media mentions, a lot of newsletters that were emerging from all cinemas that was doing something pretty interesting and unique. And I say unique because prior to COVID, you could go to a cinema on Christmas day, you know, Christmas um, cinemas don't close, you know, they, and for them to be suddenly placed in a shutdown, where when you cast your mind back, no one really knew, right? There was so much uncertainty at that time. No one really knew when cinemas were going to reopen. And as we know, they reopened in Australia in a very patchy way when you think of the shutdowns in Victoria. So all of that, all that uncertainty prompted in the minds of cinemas some really kind of reflective and interesting accounts of, well, this is why cinema matters, right? We're going to be back. We've sustained, you know, over the course, even some like really good historical kind of overview of like cinema has weathered the storm of technology and social change. And we've been around for 100 years. We're going to be around for 100 more. So that stuff was super interesting. And it was the independence that we felt did the best job and probably the most engaged job of putting those words out. And then as COVID unfolded and as those shutdowns lengthened, of maintaining that connection with an audience. So that is why our research ended up um, focusing largely on the independents uh, because they either had the time or the inclination or the, the, the kind of push to make that connection uh, with their individual audiences. That's not to say the majors did not do it. They certainly did. The way in which they went about it though was quite different. So both have kind of emerged, both the major change and the independence uh, from COVID, uh, looking to get kind of back on their feet. And in many ways, they've done so successfully. But yes, the research that we looked at um, and that we conducted with Palace Cinemas, uh, the audience for that really 
uh, were engaged cinema goers who were kind of very keen to talk more about um, their motivations for cinema going, what they would change about cinema going if they could, um, and also memorable cinema experiences. And just to round out that thought, you know, in terms of memorable cinema experiences, it's so interesting to read, you know, over 10,000 kind of qualitative comments, but so many of them did not talk about the film, right? So if we want to, if we, again, if we want to reflect on that whole experience of cinema going, of course films matter. It's the thing that is getting people in. But when people reflect on a memorable cinema experience, so much is about the film, but also so much about that feeling that you had, right? Which is expressed in different ways. The people you were with, both the people that you know, that you deliberately went with, but also these unknown people who also were in the cinema, who heightened an experience, okay? Who brought this kind of new consensual um, group dynamic that was absent. The site itself, you know, um, even the food that they had and the kind of experience that they had, the pre and post kind of elements of that uh, of that visit and the conversations that they had. So that all those things kind of factored in. And it does remind us that that whole experience of cinema going needs to be thought about and cultivated as that this kind of whole end to end experience rather than this big focus alone on content and the film itself. Mm. I guess just out of curiosity, obviously, um, you've conduct a lot of research into this. Is there any research that you've come across in your own research um, that is interesting and for people who want to learn more about these topics can sort of seek out on their own? Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, the it, in recent times, I mean, I think probably the research that feeds most into the kind of conversation that we've had uh, is probably coming out of the Cinema Foundation uh, and NACO, so the National Association of Cinema Operators uh, in the US. So they have set up a non-profit uh, that is very much invested in uh, research, survey-based methodology um, around the habits and motivations for cinema going. So they've put out some reports that are freely available. Anyone can go and find those. Um, and that is, uh, that is some really interesting, relevant work. Um, here in Australia, uh, NATO, so the National Association of Theatre Operators, uh, and QUT are engaged in a research partnership and we will be looking to develop that and also produce research, not just with NATO, but with other uh, industry partners and hopefully looking at a, a distribution and an exhibition partnership with industry partners and research to be able to move some of these ideas uh, forward and to develop some research that is Australia-wide, so for this territory. So that's important research. Uh, the other places and spaces where I see um, some really interesting activity. I mean, look, I have to give a huge shout out to, um, I can never pronounce his surname because I haven't had to say it, I just read it. But Patrick von Schiskau um, from, uh, I want to say Cinema Blend, it's not Cinema Blend, uh, Celluloid Junkie, what? Celluloid Junkie, right? Uh, which he has a very cellular junkie has a very strong um, LinkedIn presence and they produce a couple of newsletters and podcasts. But Patrick had a who's just retired actually uh, after many years of service, but he had a, a wonderful kind of reflective piece on his role as, as someone who aggregates um, research and information about the exhibition industry. You know, and he talked about how. I don't get invited to, to film festival premieres or film premieres. I get invited to the openings of cinemas, you know, because that's how embedded he is in, in the industry. So 
he's been a, an amazing uh, source and resource of uh, relevant industry news. Um, but to your question, so there are two, they're two main ones. Um, I mean, the the trickiness always, I think, is that kind of industry reporting, um, as we know, as critical media consumers, uh, will always have a certain amount of colour and influence and allegedly kind of bias attached. And research is not immune from that either. But I really do, and of course I would say this, but I really do think that there's a role for public universities to play in collaboration with industry uh, in this space, okay? Because in many ways as a researcher and to your research question, we kind of don't have a dog in this fight beyond being incredibly, like I am not a um, an independent researcher when it comes to cinema in the sense that I take a very firm view on the role of cinema, cinema as a good, like cinema equals good for me as a researcher. I'm not uh, this kind of objective, examining it under a microscope approach, right? I, I feel that cinema has too much and historically has had too much value, economic, cultural, social value to offer us all for me to be at a remove from cinema. So my position as a researcher is always that cinema is a good thing and needs to be supported, right? So that is a, the fundamental position that I take in relation to all my research in relation to cinema. But I do think um, that there still is a certain remove that researchers and academics have, which can be really valuable in collaboration with industry, okay? Because like any outside kind of group, we're able to kind of pull up and have that kind of 30,000 feet view. We're able to see that kind of historical arc sometimes of where things have gone and happened and been before. So I think that there's probably a need for far more uh, industry and public university or private university collaboration to develop uh, industry reporting and ongoing industry reporting, you know, long-term longitudinal studies around the habits of audience and audience going. I mean, the things that stand in the way of that, of course, are funding and resourcing um, and a willingness to do it. But I think if COVID has taught the industry anything, it's that there has been a change that's occurred. And the only way we're going to wrap our heads around the, the, the shape and size and scale of that change is to spend the time to do it through research by asking people these questions and really thinking deeply uh, about the implications of some of this research. I guess on a bit of a lighter note now, and obviously we've been talking about film for a little while now, is there anything that you've watched yourself recently that you've really enjoyed or anything that you're looking forward to that's upcoming? I think the thing that I saw that I really enjoyed, and it's, I still think about it occasionally, is um, After Sun. Uh, the, the Paul Mescal film, After Sun, um, I'm drawing a blank on the director's name right now. Uh, Charlotte Wells, I believe. Charlotte Wells, thank you. It, it affected me deeply. Yeah. Um, and I went into, as everyone, I, like as anyone who's watched a really amazing film, I, I think tends to do, I then went into this massive rabbit hole of just reading and researching around the film. Uh, and that's a rich source of, you know, because Reddit just has so many things to say about that film. So I just loved that. I just thought it was incredible. In terms of what I'm looking forward to, look, I mean, like everyone on the planet, um, I plan to, uh, yeah, hopefully do the double bill for Oppenheimer and Barbie. You know, as someone said to me this morning, it's the kind of espresso and the cigarette with the black hat to kick off um, Oppenheimer in the morning. And then you just move to mimosas um, for Barbie and you just kind of keep on on tracking. That, that sounds like a pretty good way to spend the day in the cinema. So uh, I have to put a plug in for um, Palace James Street, who's running... Um, 
70 mil uh, for yeah. Alzheimer. Yeah. Uh, that's it arrived the other day, and by all accounts, it's 11 miles of, wow. yeah. of, of 70 mil uh, footage. So, you know, that's that's a kind of big film in every sense, you know, physically, organizationally, uh, in terms of its length. So, so yeah, I, I'm really intrigued in, in in terms of both of those films in the counter programming kind of um, role that they play. Right. I mean, both are really big, obviously, but it does speak to, I guess, to tie it back to, to our earlier conversation. I mean, I have seen neither of them, but I get a very strong sense that they're very different films. Okay. And perhaps feeding audiences in very different ways. And I just think it's so important that, that cinema continues to be able to have that diversity of content, that diversity of stories moving forward. So they're, they're two films. And look, I will absolutely be watching very closely, not only how those films perform at the box office, but the kind of narrative that emerges both in the media uh, and on social media in terms of just what people are saying around both of those films. Not necessarily, I mean, only people that get nerdy about this stuff that really think about them in in concert and, and how they kind of are in con conflict and intention with each other. Um, but yeah, they're just two big releases that are going to be coming up that are very distinct, quite different, um, but I guess speak to the diversity of what cinema can do and what cinema audiences can do. Yeah, I think it's a very exciting month. Like, I'm really looking forward to them both. And I what think are you looking forward to, Dom? Uh, I mean, like, look, I'm the same. I'm going to watch Oppenheimer and Barbie both. I will probably rewatch Oppenheimer more than once. I mm. think I have that tendency with Nolan films just to watch it the first time, just let it wash over me, and then just try to rewatch it down the line to try and understand it. But I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm looking forward to Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. It's been mm. coming out a bit later here in Australia, but I am really looking forward to that. And then even Gran Turismo is, it's curious for me because it is a true story. And um, I have played the game. So I am curious about that. So, yeah, I think it's a really exciting next few months. Um, Rory, I mean, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me today. Um, you know, we look forward, or here at Groovy, we look forward to see your continued research and hopefully we can touch base down the line again. Thanks, Dom. I mean, I said at the start, it really is a pleasure to talk to other people who are invested in this industry, who care about research uh, and want to see cinema thrive. So thanks for the opportunity. So that's all for us this week. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time on the Cinema Sit Down.